The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul, I made it here. I didn't. I didn't know if I was going to make it, Paul. I've been a little under the weather, but but we're doing it. This is an episode of Hotcakes, and and I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I we were talking offline. I'm like, whatever you need to do, to take care of yourself. This is the era of self care. But inside, I was in a blind panic <laughs> um, that you weren't going to be here. So I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that you're feeling better, mostly selfishly. I, I just couldn't. I just couldn't miss this opportunity to hang out with Dr. Rahul Ganatra and Dr. Nora Toronto. This is just this is a fun show for us, Paul. We get to we get to mix it up, act like act like we know what we're talking about. It's 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 a good time. <laughs> yeah, where I can I can display my usual ignorance and rule can correct, and then we can teach that way too. So it's it everyone wins. Right. Well, how about you tell the audience what is it we do on this show, and then we can uh, we can move on to maybe some picks of the week before we get to the articles. Sure. Happy to, as always. Uh, as a reminder, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and typically we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. But as you already alluded to, this is our uh, wildly popular Peabody Award-winning Hotcakes series, where we actually go through journal articles that we thought were neat or interesting or compelling um, and try to pick them apart and see if they are useful or not. And then we rate them on a mostly arbitrary hotcake system that I think we've been working on. And I will remind the audience that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME for all health professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Now with that, let's go to our good friend, Dr. Nora Plout Toronto for a pick of the week. What's up, y'all? Glad to be here with you guys. Um, I have a couple, I've been watching a lot of TV uh, while I studied for step three the last few weeks. So I have so many possible picks of the week. But my my latest one is the uh, Netflix series Cheer, which I don't know whether any of you guys have watched, but the second season just came out and it's a documentary series about uh, several junior college cheerleading teams that are uh, like uh, national champions. It's really, really compelling. The characters are fascinating. And it also taught me a lot about a sport that I know very, very little about. Kind of like Friday Night Lights, but in a very different way. So, and both take place in Texas. So that's my pick of the week. I believe our our good friend, Dr. Leah Witt, has recommended that mm. the first season when that came out. And I, I saw the trailer for that show. It's Probably not for me, but it looks interesting. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of people said that, including myself. And uh, I think my dad actually initially really <laughs> was not interested. And then I had it on. And it's it's really interesting. Okay. Well, if it's good enough for Reconsider. your father, then it's, you know, exactly. maybe I should check it out. <laughs> he watches a lot of TV too, so. <laughs> All right. Rahul, how about you? I've realized that I have a lot of uh, imposterism regarding my picks of the week because everyone else always has these really fascinating like bohemian <laughs> things, especially Paul, <laughs> that you know, belie this you know life of intrigue and I always have like cookies. Uh, but I feel like I finally have <laughs> something this great. week. Is it cookies? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not cookies, <laughs> although maybe I sh should do that for next week. Um, no. Do people know what yak tracks are? I do not know. Is it? Is, I thought it sounded like an them. ice cream, like Moose Tracks ice cream or something. I don't know. It's, a, it's an <laughs> well, off-brand Moose tell Tracks you, Matt, ice cream. 
<laughs> off-brand moose tracks. No, something much better. Yak tracks are uh, flexible like cleats that you can attach to your shoes for uh, any activity kind of out in the ice and snow, walking, running, hiking. And they, they work surprisingly well. I got a pair uh, as a, a holiday gift for my wife. And uh, I have used them to run uh, with confidence on like fresh ice. And it's they totally work. I, I'm a big uh, enthusiast now. Yak tracks for all your winter. Oh, running that needs. is a hot tip there. Thank you, Rahul. I've, huh. I've broken my ankle running on the ice in, uh, in, in your city, Boston. <laughs> uh, that was 20 years ago, but uh, I could have used those back then. All right. Well, we, yeah. we wanted you to go. Th- that was a great pick. We we should go before. We, we're, I'm letting you go before Paul because last time you had so much anxiety going <laughs> go after him. Paul. Paul, what's your pick of the week? No, I mean, mine's an easy one. This was an underhand pitch. It was like, so someone went and laid out catnip for me. So I'm going to recommend The Tragedy of Macbeth. Um, the, the film that just came out is on, I think, Apple TV, directed by Joel Cohn. So one of the first movies that he's done without his brother, Ethan, um, starring Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand. Um, using the words of William Shakespeare, who apparently can write. And it is, it's, I mean, it's just, it's a masterpiece. Like, I, it's, yes, I mean, like Denzel can act, like you know, the water's wet and the sky is blue, but like it is, his performance is remarkable. The entire thing is shot in black and white and is like stark and surreal and kind of almost like a German expressionist movie. It's, it's just beautiful to look at. The score is incredible. The fact that the leads are a little bit older than we typically cast lends the sense of urgency and actually kind of twists the plot a little bit around and kind of just changes motivations in a way that's super interesting. It has everybody like Brendan Gleeson. There's like a two minute amazing bit by Stephen Root, the character actor. Um, so it's just it's something I it was just a movie that I, I absolutely loved. Not surprisingly, I went into it wanting to love it and I was happy to. So if that sounds up your alley, I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. The Tragedy of Macbeth. Just remarkable, Paul. Just remarkable. These these are off the cuff people. He was not. He's he's not reading from a note card. There. <laughs> this is all scripted. I haven't read my article, but I've written all this down. <laughs> so, Paul, you know, call back to a previous show. So this is from the email. Uh, listener Jody Marks, nurse practitioner, said uh, he sent us an email. I didn't realize that milk and molasses enemas might be a regional thing. I am in Alabama, and it's a pretty common thing here. I will say that from a nursing point of view, it makes the whole experience much more pleasant because the molasses covers the poo odor quite well. I would not recommend it if you plan on consuming molasses at any point thereafter, though. It pretty much well or it pretty well ruins the experience for life. So thank you, Jody, for confirming that the milk and molasses is the preferred enema, at least in, in Alabama. This episode of the Curbsiders is brought to you by Grammarly Premium. Curbsiders, we've been using Grammarly for over a year now, and there's a reason for that. Paul, he struggles with the tone of his emails. He doesn't want to sound angry, and Grammarly can help him with that. And B, well, I've said it before, I don't really understand commas. Grammarly is an AI-powered writing assistant that helps me write clearly and mistake-free so I can feel good about my written communication. At the Curbsiders, we're putting out weekly show notes, we have blog posts, we're constantly emailing with guests and listeners, and we want to make sure that we're doing a good job with our written communication. And with Grammarly, it helps us in many ways. One of those ways is it helps us simplify things. Grammarly will actually suggest whole sentence rewrites because sometimes I say things in a way that just doesn't make any sense. Grammarly also helps me with word choices so I can sound smart with better vocabulary 
And Grammarly helps Paul with his tone so that he's not sounding like a grumpy pants when he's sending emails to people. We want you to start your year off right with Grammarly. Our listeners right now can get 20% off Grammarly Premium at Grammarly.com slash curb. That's 20% off at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash curb. Grammarly.com slash curb. This episode of The Curbsiders is supported by Green Chef. Green Chef is a meal kit service that makes eating well easy. Whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, or if you're just looking to eat more balanced meals, Green Chef offers a range of recipes to suit your preferences. With fresh produce, premium proteins, and organic ingredients you can trust, Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. Green Chef offers 35 nutritious and flavorful options to choose from every week, featuring premium, clean ingredients that are seasonally sourced for peak freshness. Green Chef makes cooking easy so you can spend less time stressing and more time enjoying delicious home-cooked meals. I will say as someone who really loves cooking, but also as someone who does not have a whole lot of free time, Green Chef has been a real boon. You get these meals that are shipped right to your door. The ingredients are prepackaged and portioned out, so it's just a matter of assembling according to the, the, the recipe that's included. It's a way to put together a really thoughtful, delicious meal that feels homemade without all the stress of waiting in line at the grocery store and having to hunt for ingredients. So if that sounds appealing to you, I would encourage you to go to greenchef.com slash curb130 and use code curb130 to get $130 off plus free shipping. Again, that is greenchef.com slash curb130 and use code curb130 to get $130 off plus free shipping. Green Chef, it is the number one meal kit for eating well. All right. So with that, Paul, how about you take us into our first article of the evening and I'll let you introduce it. Yeah, no, thank you for this this smooth transition, Matt. Um, so I I chose for my article an article out of uh, JAMA Cardiology that came out um, a couple months ago. This is from the iStop AFib trial with uh, Marcus et al. So the full study is Individualized Studies of Triggers of Proxismal Atrial Fibrillation, the iStop AFib clinic, randomized clinical trial. And I didn't choose it because of the name, um, <laughs> which, which I hate like all cardiology <laughs> trial names. But it's the, the question that they were asking is, and we'll, we'll get into what this means, but does N of 1 testing of patient-selected atrial fibrillation triggers enhance their atrial fibrillation-associated quality of life? And I, I picked this because I was fascinated by the this N of 1 study design, um, which is this really patient-centered approach that actually manages the patients to kind of design their own study for themselves and then evaluate the intervention on it. So basically, the question is, if you allow patients to do that, does that improve their quality of life related to atrial fibrillation? And then some of the other stuff they looked at is, does some of the exposures that the patients were um, experimenting with triggering or or avoiding, did that actually impact their atrial fibrillation in any kind of um, way in terms of actually episodes of atrial fibrillation? And then bottom line, and before we sort of get into the more specifics, is that it didn't actually seem to improve the quality of life, which I, I, I found interesting because in some instances, it actually did reduce episodes of atrial fibrillation. So you would think that those things would naturally follow, but they didn't necessarily. So I'd like to maybe pause there and since we have Rahul um, at our disposal, I actually just ask him to talk a little bit about this this N of one study design because I I'd never seen it before, um, but I think it's just it's such an interesting and individualized way to kind of study a phenomenon. Absolutely, um, this is a great example of an N of one study. So the problem that an N of one study design is meant 
to address is that in a traditional randomized controlled trial, we can really only estimate the average effect of a treatment in a group of patients. And subgroup analyses can be used to try to drill down a little bit more, like do patients with diabetes or coronary disease respond differently to the treatment, but we really never know how the individual patient in front of us is going to react to a treatment. So the N of 1 study, as Paul was describing, is a really patient-centered alternative to a traditional randomized trial where individual patients are switched multiple times, go through multiple crossovers between either an exposure and lack of an exposure or between two treatments to find out what is the individual treatment effect in that particular patient. And these studies can be blinded, they can be double-blinded. Um, they really don't work best for diseases that are kind of stable and slow and progressive, okay? And they work best where there's a clear set of symptoms or a biomarker that will kind of indicate uh, success or failure. You obviously can't do this for an outcome that's sort of catastrophic, like a like an MI or death. And this kind of works. <laughs> a lot of washout that can't way. Go, yeah. Exactly. Can't, can't row back from that one. And, and as you mentioned with washout, this works best for treatments that kind of have a quick onset and a quick offset. So there's kind of a specific place for these studies, but where they can be done, they're a great way to, to try to estimate what is going to be the individual effect of this treatment in this patient. Paul, so can you tell us a little bit more about like what it looked like for the individual patients in this study, the design of it? Yeah, it's, as is my way, I, I think uh, faithful listeners will know, I usually pick studies where I don't realize exactly how complicated the design is, and I regret <laughs> the choice that I've made. So this is complicated but fascinating. So the, the patients were allowed to choose their own potential trigger for their paroxysmal atrial fibrillation episodes. And the, the triggers included things like caffeine and alcohol, which were the two most chosen things, but also lack of sleep, um, exercise, lying on your left side, dehydration. <laughs> Um, and then they could even sort of pick, there was another column that they could also choose. And over a six-week period, they then, at three of the weeks of that six-week period, during one of the days, during the, that one-week interval, they would choose to expose themselves to the potential trigger. So they would dehydrate themselves or have some beer or drink some coffee or miss sleep or whatever the other was. I, I, I should dig deeper to find out what the other was. And then the other three weeks, they would avoid those things consciously. And so after that six-week period where they've had three weeks of possible exposures and three weeks of avoidance... Um, they would then get this printout of, okay, so here's how much atrial fibrillation you had, and here's whether or not we thought this is actually related to your trigger or not. And then they were given four weeks to adjust their behavior, and, and then they evaluate afterwards as to whether or not this impacted their quality of life. Does that make sense? Yeah, it is, it is like you said, complicated, but it makes sense. Okay. Yeah, it's because it was a lot of words. But so basically... They, they expose themselves. That's the wrong way of saying it, but they expose themselves <laughs> to the trigger. Um, <laughs> they were avoided things and then they, they did fancy. Then, then statistics ensued. Um, they got a printout of basically whether or not those exposures, like how that impacted their atrial fibrillation. And they were given four weeks to adjust their behavior and then evaluate after that fact. Um, so it was a chance to see. Um, yes, Dr. Toronto. <laughs> Just Paul, thinking was of a, a great study pun. that involved exposures, uh, kind of as in an N of one trial. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Paul is a great pun. <laughs> but I, yeah. Yep. Good stuff. Um, <laughs> so in any case, they, and then after they went through this whole rigmarole that uh, for a total of 10 weeks, they were given the opportunity to choose a different exposure and do it all over again up to, up to a total of three times. They could actually choose different exposures throughout the course too. Um, so, yeah, so that was the study. Complicated, but interesting. I wanted to ask Rahul, so I was looking I was looking at this and some of the limitations that I, I think they even just said in the paper, 
there was like a relatively high attrition rate and they weren't wearing continuous EKG monitors. So maybe we missed, maybe we missed the treatment effect because there was a, a lot of patients left the study or didn't, they didn't have all the data on them, or they, they would have picked up more AFib events if they had a continuous monitor on. But can you talk about, was there anything else about the design of this that you thought maybe contributed to this being a negative trial? Of course. Like you said, there was no difference in the primary outcome, which was uh, measured by the survey instrument, um, this quality of life questionnaire that patients filled out once a month. Um, and I'll just note that the authors did something interesting. They did a series of individual N of 1 trials, and then they did a meta-analysis to combine all of those individual treatment effects into an average treatment effect. So while it, it was the case that there was no difference in AFib-related quality of life on average, we have all this data to be able to know whether for individual patients there was uh, a reduction. So th this kind of is a flexible way to demonstrate the strengths of this study design. And there were some design features that I think make a negative result more likely. A survey that you fill out once a month is something that's going to be prone to recall bias, so that would affect the precision of the estimate. The intention to treat analysis was really conservative in this study. The authors considered every day during an exposure period where patients were uh, advised to e expose themselves to the, the trigger of interest uh, as, as having achieved that, which almost assuredly people did not. So um, in this study, I think the per-protocol analysis is actually um, probably more reflective of what people do in the real world. And there were some important secondary outcomes. They did find that uh, alcohol in the per-protocol analysis was associated with uh, AFib-associated uh, quality of life, and about 40% fewer atrial fibrillation events occurred uh, during the four-week period in the entire population. So those are still benefits that uh, um, you, know, you can use information like this to treat your patients. And even though this was a negative study with regard to the primary outcome, I think there are some, some reasons for that that we can understand why. Paul, I, I think a really important takeaway here is that caffeine is once again vindicated, by the yeah. way. So even though mm -hmm. alcohol um, was associated <laughs> with the relation, I just, I cannot stress enough caffeine, A-OK. -okay. So Paul, what what is your, how many hotcakes would you give this on a scale of zero to five, five being the most practice changing, you know, best designed uh, study? Yeah, I, I think I'm going to land on my usual three, which is not a criticism. It's just, it's it's hard to know quite what to do with this, but I, I think- at least the alcohol part's interesting, and I, I and the caffeine part, of course, is very satisfying. And I, I thought this the design was fascinating and has implications for other trials um, and a chance to look at this further. So I, I'll give it a solid three. All right. Next up is the the click trial. Nora, do you want to tell us about this one and we and start off the discussion? Sure. So the click trial was a trial by Agarwal et al. Um, just published in the New England Journal uh, about. Uh, a week ago, two weeks ago now. Um, and it looked at uh, the use of chlorothaladone as a means of lowering blood pressure in hypertensive patients with advanced kidney disease. And so their question was, is chlorothaladone safe and effective in advanced kidney disease? Um, and this is actually a question that I, I was very curious the answer to because uh, anecdotally, I feel like we talk all the time about all the electrolyte derangements that we we worry about with chlorothaladone and thiazide diuretics in particular. 
So overall, the study enrolled 160 individuals, uh, half into the placebo arm and half into the chlorthalidone group. There were dose adjustments every two to four weeks over the 12 weeks of the study. And so uh, they followed the blood pressures and lab changes over the course of the 12 weeks for those 160 individuals with visits over that course as well. Um, it was an intention to treat analysis. And overall, it was a positive study. They found a significant decrease in the systolic blood pressures in the chlorthalidone arm compared to the placebo. This is an exciting trial because we, well, we do have an episode coming out, audience, talking about uh, hypertension and how to treat it in CKD. But this was, this was a, a practice. I would, I would have been afraid to give chlorthalidone to anybody with advanced CKD. So exciting to see this. And uh, this was a positive trial Rahul, what do we need to look out for here to make like in and be? I always want to be cautious in my interpretation of a positive trial before I just like blindly rush into putting this into practice. This is great. I think what you identified that this is a uh, a sort of proof of concept uh, that you know you use maybe we can use chlorothaladone safely in patients with CKD. I think there, the study has a lot of value for that reason, but your impulse to look for ways in which the study could be vulnerable to a false positive is really important. And as I'm looking over the design of the study, there's a couple things that stand out to me that could influence that likelihood. One, I'll just note that in the concert diagram uh, in the supplement, it's made clear that only about 5% of patients who were screened were ultimately included, which that in and of itself is not necessarily bad, but it does make you take pause and ask the question, you know, is this kind of a Goldilocks phenomenon of selecting only the exact right patients who are likely to derive benefit from this strategy? Um, and we can talk a little bit more about the adverse effects, but the study population was people with blood pressure over 130 over 80, but less than 160 over 100. And we were talking before air, you know, a lot of us care for patients with CKD with blood pressures kind of a lot worse than that. So, um, you know, there's, I have some concern that the, the patient population might've been a little highly selected. I, and um, I think they were, I think the, they were trying to protect cause they were going to be giving placebo. They, I think they were just, didn't want to give placebo to somebody with a blood pressure 160 over a hundred, but th that was my thinking on that, at least the initial exclusion criteria. I totally agree. I think, and I think that's an appropriate decision to ensure that the, the right patient population where there's uncertainty about the effect are enrolled. And then second, since the authors did identify a relatively large effect size, 10 and a half millimeters of mercury, even with a small sample size, uh, more than what they were powered to detect, that, that does to me suggest that there is uh, very likely a real uh, large effect uh, in this patient population. Yeah. Paul, what did you think about the the people who are on three and a half drugs at baseline and then they're adding chlorothaladone as the fourth drug? Are you seeing this in practice? I, I'm not. I, I think it goes back to the the point that I, for whatever the reason, anecdotally, the thiazides were thought to just be great agents. So in terms of it, this is the thing that if you're going to choose a fourth agent to add on, that is not the one I think a lot of folks would think of, at least um, where I practice, because I, I think the going theory was the thiazides just aren't helpful once you get past a certain point in kidney disease. So I think this is actually a really exciting and encouraging trial right. so far to me. And and I like the point you made earlier um, be, off air that the the average systolic blood pressure in the in the groups was in the 140 range, which is not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot good. of people would just be like, "Hey, we're doing it." Like they would. Yep. A lot of people would leave that go. 
Yep. But the the KDigo guidelines, which were recently released in the, I believe it was the end of 2021, Paul, it's all blurring mm-hmm. together, but the yeah, KDigo no, guidelines, they, they're targeting for advanced CKD, CKD4, a blood pressure systolic 120. And even in the treatment group, if you're starting at 140 and you're getting down by like 10 points, you're you're not even quite making it under 130. Yeah, even though I would be with doing four, cartwheels in the hallway if I got there, but that's, right yeah. with like four and a half meds. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not easy to to uh, to get the blood pressure down. I was I was impressed that most of this blood pressure improvement in the chlorthalidone group seemed to happen at least per their report by kind of within the first month or so and at the lowest dose, uh, which which suggests that you may actually not need a ton of it for it, for it to actually be effective, yeah. even in folks with advanced kidney disease. Our sponsor today is Blue Land. Audience, my wife and I love this next sponsor. We've been using Blue Land products for the past few months, and we are just so thrilled with them. And you know what? It's about time that something like this came around because it's 2022 and it's time to stop wasting water and throwing out more plastic bottles. And that's why you got to get Blue Land's revolutionary refill cleaning system instead. Their idea is simple and beautiful. You buy a bottle once and you refill it forever so there's no more plastic waste. Just fill a bottle with warm water. Pop in one of the hand soap or spray cleaner tablets and within minutes you have powerful cleaning products in some of the most incredible scents and they even make plastic-free laundry, dishwasher, and toilet cleaner tablets. The other day my son was in the bathroom and he's like, Mom, what is this smell in here? It smells amazing. I love it. And it was the Blue Land toilet cleaner tablet that we had just thrown in there. So try Blue Land today. You're going to love it and the planet will thank you. Right now, you can get 20% off your first order when you go to blueland.com slash curb. That's 20% off your first order of any Blueland products at blueland.com slash curb. Blueland.com slash curb. This episode of The Curbsiders is supported by Provider Solutions and Development, expert recruitment advisors with 20 years of experience. Recruitment had to change, so they took away quotas and started listening to clinicians. There are plenty of options when it comes to your career in medicine, but just like every patient is different, each physician has their own personal definition of success. Provider solutions and development doesn't bring one answer for all. They are recruitment experts, focusing on who you are before helping you find out where you're meant to be. Whenever your next career move happens, you deserve a job search partner who considers who you are before looking for your next role. Provider solutions and development is a group of empathetic recruitment advisors helping physicians like you find the place you really want to be, and it starts by learning what matters most to you. Whatever you're ready for next, they'll help you find it, with no quotas or commissions to get in the way. You can start the conversation today or anytime at info.psdconnect.org forward slash curbsiders. Again, that is info.psdconnect.org forward slash curbsiders. Nora, what did you think about the conclusions we can draw from this? It was a 12-week trial, and it's targeting just blood pressure lowering, which is, it's a marker, but it's not like a hard clinical endpoint. What did you think about that as far as like, would this change things for you? Yeah, so it definitely changes 
to some extent how I think about chlorthalidone as a tool in my toolbox. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to be jumping to to put all of my patients with end-stage uh, advanced kidney disease on it yet, uh, just because it had such a short, short follow-up period. And there were some significant electrolyte abnormalities and adverse events in both groups. There were no significant differences between the placebo and the chlorthalidone arm, but but there were uh, there were increased rates of hypomagnesemia, uh, hypokalemia, and uh, hyperuricemia in the in the chlorthalidone arm, um, and we we didn't see those uh, in terms of serious adverse events, at least as I can tell. But but something to kind of think about, and then. Longer term, I think we just don't know yet whether or not chlorthalidone, like like other antihypertensives that we use in this patient population, ACE arbs, beta blockers, um, whether whether they confer uh, any cardioprotective or renal protective effect yet. Can I ask her whole the adverse events I'm interested in because it was something like ninety one percent in the in the in the test group and and eighty or like eighty nine the control or something bananas like that like they were both seemed very high. And there were a lot of adverse events listed, and it was all kind of clumped together. So I wasn't quite sure what to do with that. But just looking at the breakdowns, things like acute kidney injury, higher in the chlorthalidone group, though I don't have the end value in front of me, or um, some of the electrolyte abnormalities. So I'm just wondering, I, I might not even know what my specific question is, but is this way of looking at adverse events helpful, I guess? Or is there anything that could have been done differently to make this a little bit more meaningful when comparing the two groups? Or am I just looking for trouble? Nope. Great. It's a great question. And uh, there's a design feature of this trial that has some relevance to what you're asking. And that is the use of a run-in period. If the And what a run-in period is, is in the beginning of the trial, everybody gets the same treatment. And that can be either placebo or the, the treatment of interest. And in trials that use a run-in period with the, the medication of interest, you have to worry that those trials are going to underestimate the true frequency of adverse events because anybody who can't tolerate the drug is going to drop out of the study before randomization, okay? So that for, was fortunately not the case in this study. They used a placebo run-in, and this was for the purpose of medication standardization, and uh, this is a way to increase power because you are going to minimize the number of people who drop out because in order to make it through the run-in and, you know, you kind of are proving that you're going to attend study visits. That is to say that if you see it, if you read a trial with a, a run-in period that uses the treatment drug, you have to ask the question, is this prone to underestimate adverse events? So because that was not the case here, I sort of feel good about these adverse events as being reflective of chlorthalidone. What we don't know from that table in the paper is at what dose those adverse effects occurred. And I would be interested to know whether patients who experienced hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, or patients who had been titrated all the way up to 50 milligrams a day, or if those phenomena were seen at lower doses as well. So that would be an additional uh, uh, piece that, that you would want to see from the paper. I think we should probably wrap it up on this trial. Nora, what are your, what are your final take-homes from this and, and your hotcakes rating? Um, I'm overall excited about it. I think uh, I'm, I'm looking forward. They have a longer-term follow-up study that's in process now, so so I'm cautiously optimistic, uh, which leads to my hotcakes rating of I think four. Ooh, I yeah, I am excited at the prospect of using more chlorthalidone, aces and arbs, and things like spironolactone, which our upcoming guest taught us on our high blood pressure episode, Paul, our hypertension FAQ, as we're calling it. Uh, which will come out. So people check that out. Uh, that's going to be a great episode to follow up this conversation about the click trial. Let's switch gears a little bit now, Rahul. 
And can you update us on what's the status of outpatient COVID management? It's it's beautiful, right? We can easily get lots of great drugs that that can help our patients. Boy, what a setup. Uh, no, it's horrible. Everything is in limited supply. You can't find anything you need. No, okay. It's, it's kind of between those two. Um, okay, so NIH has just updated the guidelines for the treatment of high-risk outpatients with COVID-19. And I know it's hard to stay up to date on the literature uh, with all of this, mainly just because of content fatigue. I think everyone's getting really sick of having to know things about COVID. Paul is nodding vigorously yeah. for those of you who <laughs> can't see what's happening. Okay, so I will briefly regurgitate for you a digested version of, of those guideline changes. So the NIH now recommends uh, in decreasing order of preference using uh, four therapies that uh, have FDA authorization for use in, in high-risk outpatients. The first treatment that is recommended is nirmatrelvir ritonavir. The brand name is Paxlovid, and this is an oral antiviral uh, uh, produced by Pfizer. And this is a, a protease inhibitor that was developed specifically for COVID. So it's a drug that was not a repurposed uh, thing, one of the, the first that we have. And in a large phase three trial that has not yet been published, but data are available through the FDA, uh, this drug was highly effective at reducing hospitalizations and death. Um, and it was also the only agent shown to sort of convincingly stop viral replication and, and really uh, decrease viral load. The downside is that there are a lot of drug-drug interactions that are really going to limit its use, and uh, I think availability is going to be an ongoing uh, issue with this drug. So if you have access to nirmatrelvir, ritonavir, or Paxlovid, uh, NIH says that's your first go. The second uh, drug in order of preference is a monoclonal antibody called citrovimab, and this is given as a one-time IV infusion. And uh, in some ways that are fortunate, some ways that are unfortunate, the guidelines are now a lot simpler regarding the monoclonal antibodies because none of them work except for citrovimab against Omicron. So you don't have to worry about pronouncing the names of the <laughs> other ones because they, they don't work anymore. Yeah, they're moot. So NIH, yeah, they, they're they're moot points. Uh, NIH now recommends, based on the Comet ICE trial, which was published in the New England Journal, um, that you should use citrovimab. It's a one-time IV infusion, um, and uh, it's this was also shown to have high activity uh, or high efficacy at reducing hospitalizations and death. The downside of citrovimab is that being a biologic, it will be vulnerable to supply chain vulnerabilities. Um, a silver lining is that it is binds to a highly conserved part of the spike protein. So it's expected that this should retain activity against future variants of concern. Paul, were you involved in the naming of the Comet ICE trial? <laughs> Isn't that one of your side side gigs? Uh, you're I, a trial name uh, consultant? I think I can announce here, I'm really thrilled they responded to all my letters. Um, so yeah, <laughs> deeply excited that the team of Gupta liked my idea. An well, acknowledgement would have been nice, but, you know. <laughs> Paul, I don't know if this one also came from you, but the pine tree trial. <laughs> I hate it so it's much. My favorite. <laughs> is one that has been uh, getting some positive press lately. So the pine tree trial, also in the New England Journal, this uh, was uh, established remdesivir as the sort of third line recommendation for outpatients in, uh, for NIH. Um, our old friend remdesivir, when given to outpatients, was highly effective at reducing hospitalizations. But because there were no deaths in either group in this sort of small study, we don't really know uh, yet if there's any effect on mortality. But basically, this was uh, three days of treatment with IV remdesivir among high-risk outpatients. Um, uh, it was effective at reducing both hospitalizations and really any medically attended visit uh, at all. 
Uh, the downside is that it's three days of treatment with an IV med, and that may be a little tricky to coordinate, but we already know that it's safe and uh, uh, sort of not really side effects to worry about. The last medication on NIH's list uh, is a drug that uh, is uh, has, a, has a name that I think is maybe a little undeserving. It's called molnupiravir. Do people know where the name molnupiravir comes from? I believe it's Thor's hammer. It is Thor's hammer. That's right. What? Um, so <laughs> that's that's that kind of you know makes you think it would be super effective, but it it's more like maybe Thor's pog slimer would be a better. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's like Thor Endgame Thor, not not mm. Thor in uh, whatever Infinity War. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so molnupiravir is recommended only if there are no other options. And this was based on a, a, the move-out trial in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is an oral agent. It's a nucleotide analog taken for five days. This was associated with a really small reduction in hospitalizations and death. And in my opinion, I posted a little bit about this on Twitter. Th this difference could be entirely due to confounding by gender because about 8% more women by chance, ended up in the molnupiravir group. And we know that uh, men are at higher risk for severe outcomes from COVID-19. Uh, and in a, in a secondary analysis, when they controlled for the uh, imbalance in gender, this uh, benefit was completely attenuated. The subgroup analyses also support that the benefit, if any, is likely to be really small. And there are some long-term safety effects about this medication that are really not addressed uh, in this study. So for these reasons, NIH suggests this is only, you know, to be used as a last resort uh, if you don't have access to anything else. So my take-homes from uh, the update to the NIH uh, guidelines is that uh, nirmatrelvir, ritonavir, citrovimab, and remdesivir are all highly effective options for preventing uh, progression of COVID-19 in high-risk outpatients. And I'll just add here, all patients in all four studies were unvaccinated. So it is... Uh, totally unknown at this point what the effect of these medications will be, if any, in risk reduction for high-risk vaccinated patients. Um, the efficacy and safety of uh, molnupiravir is, are less clear and should really only be used as a last resort, and the choice is sort of dictated by patient factors and availability. Yeah, so we're going to wrap up this topic. I, I did want to ask the, the great Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, have you been using any of these outpatient treatments? Have you found it hard to get them or confusing as to what to do? I, I mean, it's, I, it's, yeah, thanks for the setup. A, a challenge, you know, I, I think for our transplant patients specifically, the, um, the Paxlovid or their Nermetrovir, Ritonavir, the Ritonavir parts being the sticking point was just an absolute nightmare for drug interactions. You know, I've had patients, it's, you know, if you have someone who happens to be on a pixaban or full dose of pixaban or amlodipine or atorvastatin or more importantly, your immunosuppressants for transplant. So if you're a transplant patient, so by definition would be at high risk and are on tacrolimus, it just it just jacks up tacrolimus level something fierce. So it's it's a challenging medication um, to use from a drug interaction standpoint. And then the other agents I've had um, some limitations on getting a hold of. The remdesivir is interesting. I actually want to ask Rahul. I know we're, we're coming up to closing time. But the, uh, you know, I, I haven't looked in great detail at that study, but I just, I can't help but wonder if having the capacity to go someplace three days in a row suggests an infrastructure and support system that might favor a healthier patient than might necessarily benefit from that. But I don't know if I'm reading too much into the study or not, but I just feel like you have, you have to have some stuff in place to even be able logistically to, to manage the remdesivir. 
Yeah, no, it's a great point. And in in that study, about 15% of patients were able to have uh, home infusions of remdesivir coordinated oh, for terrific. them. So you, some places like my branch of Cashlack Northeast, we have a, a hospital and home program that's been very agile at kind of getting uh, nurses into the patient's home to do the infusion for those really high-risk patients who, who sort of can't uh, do as you suggest to get somewhere three times. Can I ask really quickly also getting up against the time limit, but uh, fluvoxamine, where where in this uh, list do you put that and are you prescribing it when, when an outpatient calls in saying they have COVID kind of relatively regardless of their uh, risk status? So I'm no content expert uh, on fluvoxamine. Um, I will just note that NIH uh, has not included it as of yet uh, in their clinical guidelines. IDSA does have a recommendation uh, that medications that might have a, a clinical benefit, you know, should only be used in the context of a clinical trial. And I'll note that uh, David Bulware, who is an infectious disease physician, uh, I think at University of Minnesota, is uh, currently uh, running a sort of patient-driven uh, randomized controlled trial of repurposed therapies, including fluvoxamine. So if you are going to use fluvoxamine for a patient, you know, try your hardest to connect them uh, with a clinical trial so that we can kind of get the evidence to know if they if they really work. The doses are really high. Yeah. Yeah, they're like four. But also, times I mean, like there, there is some evidence. Like it's, it's, it's wild to me how it just got memory hold. I think I was talking to a colleague about this in the same way that just because I don't think we have a great mechanism of action that makes sense, we just kind of forget that it exists. Because I think we're so burned out, like ivermectin and some of the other stuff that just doesn't have plausibility. That this, it just doesn't make sense that it should work, even though this seems to be a pretty good trend that it, it does. So we just forget it exists a lot of the time. So it's, I'll be curious to see where this one goes. Nora, so the last thing we're going to talk about is a little bit of COVID testing uh, to, to leave people with that. So take us home. Awesome. Well, I, I'm sure many, many folks can, can relate to uh, wondering whether their rapid tests are false positives, false negatives, or just real. Um, and so this study was just published in JAMA uh, about a week ago um, by Gans et al. and looked at the incidence of false positives in rapid antigen tests at uh, as confirmed by PCRs later on. Um, and so looked uh, at almost a million rapid tests uh, and found that the rate of false positives in antigen testing is quite low, um, but can happen. Um, actually, greater than 50% of the false positives they found as confirmed by uh, negative PCRs were uh, from the same batch of a particular company, um, suggesting that batch testing may be, may be an issue uh, in, in false positive uh, creation. Um, so Rahul, I'd love to hear your, your quick takes on, uh, on what we can actually take away from the study and, and what, what it leaves as remaining questions. Yep. The only thing I would say about this is that anytime you're evaluating a study of a diagnostic test, just think about the possibility of what's called spectrum bias, which is, is the full spectrum of disease represented uh, in the, the population under study? And if not, you just have to be careful about applying the results. So this study was really uh, only done among asymptomatic patients, so we can't make inferences about how the false positive rate would generalize to people with symptoms. All right. Yeah, the home testing. I, I wish the home testing was working better for for Omicron than than what it seems to be right now. But the that's that's where we're at with this. There is, I will say, there's a really nice uh, New England Journal uh, diagram 
that that I found a couple of days ago, uh, kind of breaking it down uh, by pretest probability, uh, just as a nice summary of of what you might consider doing if you have a positive test and you're not sure whether it's positive based on where you are. I would say we probably all fit into the moderate to high pretest probability right now, just given given prevalence. But all right, so we'll put that link in the show notes. Paul, there's a ACP put out a diverticulitis guideline. I'll shoot that over to you in an email. I know you're <laughs> <laughs> like everyone else. They're saying no antibiotics are not needed. So we don't have to dig into it. Let's get to the outro. <laughs> that, that's just the matzo ball you're going to leave hanging I'm going to leave it out there. So listeners at home, do not treat diverticulitis. <laughs> anyway, good night, folks. <laughs> this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Yummy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. No, no, no to all of that. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, um, headed up by the amazing Nora Toronto, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and we want your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or now on Spotify. And you can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME credit for all health professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to our whole Curbsiders team. Beth Garbs Garbatelli is our executive producer and runs our Twitter. Nora Toronto is the editor for The Digest. Maddie Mad Dog Morgan is on Instagram. Tima Karganov is on the website. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Claire Morgan of Notterly edits our audio. And finally, Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook or maybe Meta now, Paul. And until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Rahul Ganatra. I've been Dr. Nora Laut Toronto. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye.